There is a rule in public speaking which states that one should never start with an apology. I'm going to throw out that rule and do just that, which is apologize, for having gone quiet for the last four weeks. The fact of the matter is, creative work is performed in sprints, and I have been sprinting for a year, which is exhausting. And if I learn nothing else from my days as a professional footballer, it's that the off-season is necessary, not just to recharge your batteries physically, but also mentally. You must want to return to work. And taking a few weeks off each summer always ensured that I would start to miss the thing that I love doing the most. You can't miss something that's always there. Thus, my hope is that a short summer break will have done wonders for us all. And with energy restored and renewed, I am excited once again to get cracking on season two of the podcast. This podcast has more deeply embedded an intuition I already had. That intuition being that so much of what we describe as wisdom or intelligence can be better thought of as access. The intelligence we associate with high performers might be better conceptualized as access. I am ever more convinced that we are only as good as the quality of information, the quality of people that we are regularly exposed to. The kicker is, this company we keep can be virtual. I hope that by being privy to some of these conversations, you have also benefited from greater access, and that each of these beautiful minds has made you sharper, smarter, kinder, braver. By happy accident, rather than design, I have discovered that I now carry the words of each guest with me. I wear their words like a talisman. Out of nowhere, I'll find that something they said will come to me in the middle of a presentation or a conversation with a loved one. What would James Riley do here? What decision would Jeannie Cho Lee take? How would Richard Koch assess this business opportunity? What questions would Bob Sheard ask to uncover the truth? It's been just over one year now since the podcast began. The show grew much faster than I expected. It spent most of the year at number one or number two in the Apple podcast charts for self-help and for business shows in Hong Kong. The show has been downloaded in 111 countries worldwide, and we have thousands of subscribers across the UK and Canada in particular, both countries I've lived in, close to my heart. And last but not least, we're very close now to 100,000 downloads overall. And I think we'll hit that milestone with the next guest. For a one-man band with zero marketing spend, I think that's pretty healthy. Having just reeled off all those numbers, you'll have to believe me when I say that I don't check the stats page very frequently at all. I rarely have a look at how the podcast is performing at the back end. What's far important to me is that it means that a lot of people have been touched by these conversations. It means that days have been altered, decisions have been shaped, and perhaps, and forgive the immodesty here, perhaps even life trajectories slightly nudged one way or another by virtue of what's been listened to over the airwaves. I know that listening to other podcasts and other shows has deeply influenced me over the years. And that was, after all, my main motivation to create this show in the very first place. I felt that I'd received so much that it was my turn to give, using whatever skill set I had as a host and an interviewer to tease out the very best in the person sitting across from me. Ultimately, I'm only as good as my guests, and I've been blessed with some excellent ones. One thing that has given me great joy over the past year is receiving messages from several listeners to say that the podcast had inspired them to start their own show 
or launch a creative venture that they'd kept under wraps for far too long for fear of how the world would receive it. That alone, in and of itself, is a victory in my book. I'll cut to the chase of why I've created this episode. There are some of you out there that have listened to all 25. You've listened to every single one and walked with me every step of the way. And for that, I am incredibly grateful. Listening to a podcast is not like scrolling through Instagram, browsing YouTube, skimming a news article. It is an investment. Dedicating one or two hours of your precious time to be a fly on the wall and just listen. That is a responsibility that I never, ever take lightly. And my motivation is always to help you become better, assist you ever so slightly towards becoming the best possible version of yourself. And I hope that that passion comes across on the airwaves. The day it doesn't is the day I stop. But back to the original point. For the vast majority of you, especially if you only came across the show recently, you haven't listened to every guest, and that's okay. I know this to be true because I myself don't listen to every single episode of my favorite shows. There's only 24 hours in a day. We each have topics that interest us more than others. So to try and mitigate against you overlooking an absolute gem due to me writing a shoddy headline or shoddy title and you then being deprived of someone who might provide you with the inspiration or consolation when you need it most, I thought it might be a good idea just to share one passage from every episode all in one convenient place. What I've done is I've taken three to four minutes of each guest so that you get a flavor of what they're about. It's not necessarily objectively the quote-unquote best part of that conversation, if such thing even exists, but each soundbite is a window into their thought processes and one that to me reveals something humorous, motivational, or profound. It is there to serve as a soundbite in the very literal sense, something so tasty that it stimulates the appetite for more. If nothing else, consider this the equivalent of a greatest hits album, a greatest goals or highlights compilation that can be enjoyed in and of itself. On that note, and without further ado, let's kick off with episode one, featuring my friend Eugene Can, who implores us not to allow our perfectionist tendencies to obstruct our creativity, and then reminds us that comparison really is the thief of joy. I'll see you on the other side. Don't be so enamored with the end product because I think that there, there's like this sort of creative muscle that comes with just like doing stuff. And I think that's the one thing that it is it, a muscle, right? Yeah. A, yeah. In this age of social media, like that's the biggest challenge is that everyone's so referential to something else they saw. And there's a lot of like confirmation bias like, oh, that person's like, you know, 40 under 40 and they've done that. And like you're 40 under 40. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> I will ignore yeah. that. Yeah. But, but you're the, right, right? My, yeah. But other people from there, I know you kind of place very little value on that. But, you know, not to dismiss the, the publication it came from, but I just know internally you have different metrics, right? Yeah. But people from the outside probably are, like you said, yeah. they're, they're referring and, and comparing and, and feeling inadequate, right? So, yeah. And I, I think that's the biggest challenge is like, 
honestly, uh, this is, I feel like I've been saying this a lot, but if you look at the, the overarching theme that, that dominates our world right now, like health and wellness, like mental well-being, and a lot of it comes down to not because, it, it, it comes down to a lack of security in our own thoughts and our ideas because there's so much opportunity to reference ourselves to other people. Right. It's like, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm just as subservient to that. Like, Oh man, that, that guy's younger than me. And then he's doing that. Yeah. But you don't, you know, I think at some point you have to just realize that there, there has to be like a, a changing of the guard in terms of what you value. I don't look at my career, quote unquote career success as anything to be proud of so much as it enables opportunities. Like we're having this conversation because of some stuff I might've done in like a previous professional lifetime. And that to me is valuable right someone cares enough that they want to hear what i have to say cool like that that to me is like actually much more important than than what sort of things you put on like the the fireplace mantle yeah yeah but i think that that's very challenging like a lot of people the easiest way to calculate how successful you are is like how many zeros are in your bank account and hong kong is not hong kong's the worst place the worst place for it right like when i first moved to hong kong it was like this it was like you know, coming from Canada where being rich meant you, your parents drove like a BMW 5 Series like or an X5, right? Now you're in Hong Kong like, oh, like maybe one degree of separation, they're a billionaire. And like, oh shit, like way, things are way different. And you have to like, if you don't reposition yourself, then like you're gonna get sucked into it. 100%. Episode two with Andrew Lang, documentary filmmaker, recounting his trip to Chernobyl and why he just had to venture into the basement of an abandoned hospital in the exclusion zone. It's it's a vision of what the world would look like if we just vanished, if we were if we were raptured away, and 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 to see how life just continues on without us, and and almost forgets us, and and I, I all I mean I, I can go on forever about why that why that place um, fascinates me. Um, the 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 basement that I went into. Uh, with a fireman's clothing, the reason I did that, um, and I was really happy to see the HBO show ended up. Uh, I was happy and annoyed <laughs> that the that the HBO show uh, focused on this story because this is the story that really struck me. Was there's a story of a of a young wife and this fireman. The whole city was like young uh, couples. The, the the whole I mean the city the city was like a college town. It was where if 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 at the time uh, you said I live in Chernobyl. Or I live in Pripyat. People would be like, "Oh, wow! So you must be like a like a master's degree." You you know, and and you know, for me, that's 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 a huge component of why it's such a tragic story. But this particular story was um, that, that that hit me so hard. I was crying on the plane over to the Ukraine. Was um, this the this this wife was telling the story of what happened to her husband? To her husband, and this is the. This is the fireman who they responded to a fire. They had no clue what they were getting into. Um, they just knew it was at the plant. And I think two, three weeks later, this guy was had died a horrible death. Um, and the wife traveled to Moscow to to um, you know to be with him, and she refused to to. Other uh, the doctors just said, "Look, you're he's not your husband anymore. He's a radioactive object." You know, you have you have to you can't you can't think of him as your husband anymore. But she insisted on going in and kissing him and uh, and being with him and just 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 giving him some comfort in his you know in his last days. And I, and and I can't I can't recall any specific passage or I can't quote it precisely. But the way she described it, she said 
something along the lines of, you know, this is, it sounds like, it may sound like I'm telling you a story about death. I'm actually telling you a story about love. You know, I, I'm telling you about what I had to do for my husband. Uh, and, and, you know, I knew, I knew, I knew I was putting myself in danger to be with him, but, but what else are you going to do when it's your dear husband, you know, this, this man you love. And, and sure enough, I mean, she was pregnant at the time and, uh, by horrible and fortuitous turn of chance, the baby and the placenta ended up absorbing all the radioactive material in her blood, and she survived. And the baby was stillborn, um, and was uh, was buried in like twelve feet of cement along with her husband. Um, and that's the reason I, I I had to go down into this basement because this basement in this hospital. Um, is where the, the clothing of the firemen was, was discarded because the, the nurses were like, we need to get rid of every shred of, you know, everything that these guys were wearing because they're all so radioactive. And some of the nurses even, you know, their hands were affected by just picking these things up. Episode three features Jason Tobin, one of the stars of the HBO hit show Warrior and the latest installment of the Fast and Furious franchise, F9. It's contextual, right? It's environmental. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm... I'm very, very comfortable in certain situations. Totally. Public speaking, playing football, because I know I'm good at it. Yes, right? yeah. But acting, yeah. which you would think is adjacent to public speaking, for yeah. me, actually, it's not. Because yeah. Yeah. when I'm speaking in public, I'm myself. I'm mm. not playing a character, and I'm comfortable in myself. Right, But right. when I have to, you know, pretend to be it's someone else, else, I fall to yeah. bits. Totally. totally. But that's great advice, because yeah. what I'm hearing is that, actually very similar to what I tell people who ask me for advice with public speaking, is yeah. just focus on the message. Right. Exactly, but, but how you—I love the way you uh, phrased it as kind of what is the goal of this scene. Mm. I've never thought about yeah. that as an actor, right? Yeah, yeah. That you yeah. Just what is the goal of this scene? Like, oh yeah, yeah shit! I should yeah. be trying to actually, yeah, you know, Absolutely. have an impact one way or another, and yeah. then that releases you a little bit, right? It's right. Like, okay, the focus is exactly. on the message; it's not on me. Exactly. Right? Yeah. That's absolutely right. Is the yeah. message important? Is it important to you to yeah. get that message across? Because mm. if it is, and that's your goal, you really want them to hear this message. Then all of a sudden, that's that should be more that's going to be important but if you're worried about how your hair looks then yeah. like that's you know and that's probably I, why i haven't been an actor i'm too worried about my hair <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> well, and i'm not landing any roles yeah. anytime soon let's be but, honest but just like you said like you know like uh, the goal thing right mm. it's like you know you know you say right now you, you've you know you're not a good actor but actually if if i just gave you a goal if i said to you uh in this scene i want you to win her affection then all of a sudden those words that you say are going to be influenced by that goal if i if i say to you the same scene same sentences and i say to you uh, now your goal michael is uh to let her down gently all of a sudden that'll influence how you say your dialogue so what is your goal Actually, no. My goal, my goal is to hurt her. I really want her to hurt as much as possible when I break up with her right now. Always your goal. I want to let her down gently. That's gonna make it. And all of a sudden, if those become more important to you because she is important to you. Then you'll start to forget the other stuff. And that's that's what and that's what training and practice become. Right? Like you start to practice those things. And with acting, a lot of people. Uh, may not know this but kind of like music there are standards 
you're gonna have your breakup scenes. You're gonna have your yes. these scenes. Yeah. That, like you know, the, there are a lot of mm-hmm. scenes that kind of pop up again. You know, mm-hmm. you know. So, so you practice these things. You mm-hmm. you you see them from you see different problems. Like basically, every time I get a scene, mm-hmm. it's like I have a new set of problems to figure out. Mm-hmm. And um, and yeah, so just going back to relying on techniques, and, that, and that's why, like you said, like when it comes to public speaking or playing football, you're, mm-hmm. you're super comfortable. But once I give you a script with a character, oh, mate, because you don't know what you're doing, yeah. you have no. Yeah. But as soon as I tell you what to do, yeah. you actually you'll you'll be surprised. I mean, it's it's yeah. if you can learn to drive a car, you can learn to act. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like it's not. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not, a very helpful way of breaking yeah, it down. Yeah, it's cool. I wasn't expecting an yeah. acting class. <laughs> Episode four features Michaela Alexis, and she talks to us about loss, the tyranny of choice, and the power of just asking for what you really want. I hate the word self-help um, because it's not—it's not necessarily self-help. I really think it's—it's it's more self-development. Um, but all of these books on you know negotiation, about happiness, about all of these different things. Cause I think really, you know, the most valuable thing that you can have as, as a person when you're going into business, whether you're a job seeker or you're a business owner is confidence. Right. I mean, it has to be backed up with competence, sure. but, but confidence <laughs> is so important. And so I, I, I recognize that when I was laid off, I'm like, oh, I'm not in a good place right now. I'm, I'm still feeling like a lot of grief over what just happened. So I gave myself a little bit of space to um, process what had happened. Um, I think a lot of us forget too that when we lose a job, you're also kind of losing part of your identity, especially yes. if you're a really hard worker. It becomes such an important part of your identity. So you almost have to like mourn the loss of the, t- the person that you used to be to embrace the type of person that you are to become. Absolutely. Um, and so I read a whole bunch of books. I, I don't think I've ever really done, I mean, I've done therapy for like very specific traumas. Um, so when I lost my dad, um, I'm dealing with infertility now. So I, I do see a, um, a therapist for that. But it's been very like trauma specific things. I think that, um, but where books can really help you is it can help like define your, your vision. Cause I think a lot of us kind of go into this mode, our parents, like they had a path, like a clear path, right? You go to university, you go into these courses, you get hired into whatever your degree is in. Now, not only do you have a million different choices in terms of like, whether you want to go to university or college, um, or you want to go straight into work, but you have a whole bunch of different paths of, you can go the corporate route. You can start your own business. There are so many opportunities, which is a blessing and a curse. The blessing is that there are all of these opportunities. The curse is that now you are actually forced to say, what, what do I want out of this life? Mm-hmm. How do I want to live fully? And we've never been really asked those questions before. So I think getting really clear on what is that, what is that perfect life? look? I don't want to say perfect. What does that dream life look like for you? Mm-hmm. Because sometimes, and we get caught up in like, oh, well, this salary and this, you know, parking and all these things that at the end of the day don't really matter. What do you need every single day to feel fulfilled and happy and like you are making an impact? Um, And so I think really getting clear about what you want, because sometimes we just kind of like are like, well, of course, I want this and I want that. It's like, who have you told? Because so often we're just, we're, these are our goals but we don't tell anybody, but I've got my goals written down here. I've got my goals for the week written on the floor here. Why? Because I need to know what they are 
But I also bring them up anytime somebody's like, what are you working on? What are you working towards? Because you never know which person is going to be that, that fairy godmother that's like, oh my gosh, I, I can help you with that. You just never know. But so many of us are afraid to ask, right? So I, I don't think that anything that I've done has been on my own. If anything, I would say about 70% of it has been just community. And um, I mean, the willingness to also ask for help from my community. Episode five features Benjamin Quinlan on why he left a high-flying corporate job to strike out on his own. Don't assume you know everything because, oh gosh, I realized <laughs> there was so much I did not know about running a business until I set up my business. Yeah. And uh, that, that whole experience is something that no big corporate could have ever taught me. No. I would have never learned it. No. The early years, I mean, to go to your points, were tough. Um, they were hard. We had, mm. I actually got my first project the first day I set up the company. So that so was good a start. That's a really, yeah. like, you couldn't have asked for a better start. I remember I mm -hmm. met the client at Starbucks, sent a proposal, and then the project got signed the next day. Yeah, that early and, win just gives you a bit of yeah, wind underneath your it, sales, right? It does. It yeah. does. And then you realize that fart in your sales uh, eventually <laughs> runs out of wind. Uh, and then you say, oh, okay, well, now I need to think about all the other aspects about running a business. What is next? And Consulting is very lumpy, right? You have moments where, you, you know, when it pours, when it rains, it pours, right? And when it's, when it's a dry spell, it can be a dry spell uh, because the gestation period for a consulting project is quite long. The sales cycle is quite long and the, the sticker price is not cheap. We generally have to get very involved in that long sales journey and build trust and confidence over time. And getting used to that sales cycle and the fact that I didn't have a salary anymore and the fact that I knew that if I didn't bill and build this business, that I would go hungry and I would have to go back to the thing that I hated. That was the drive. There it is. Right? That, that was it. Driver. That was yeah. it to say, I, I'm I not going to go back. Cannot go back. Yeah. There's no, like I was, I'm getting approached. I'm getting wooed. I'm getting a tap on the shoulder. Big job here, big job there. And I say, no, 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 no. Because I'm, you know what the problem is with corporates? Me, I'm the problem. I realize that it's not the corporate machine. They are the way they are. You can't change them. Some are better than others. Fine. But at the end of the day, it's me. It's my character type, my way of working, the way I like like to build culture, the way I like to encourage my team members, the way I like to make people happy at work. Who would have thought that was such an insane <laughs> ideal for a company Mental. to have? <laughs> I really, really put that front and center is to say, why did I leave my profession? It wasn't because of the company or the logo. It's nothing to do with that. A company has nothing, right? It's a bit of goodwill, but it's the people in the company. And people, you know, it's the old saying, people leave managers and they do. And I never wanted people to leave me. So I wanted to create the right environment where people felt, I want to follow you. I know your journey. It's not going to be easy, but I'm going to stick with you. I believe in you as much as you believe in you. And, uh, and I'll help you get there. And I think for those that have stuck the course with me, uh, I hope it's been a rewarding journey. And I hope they feel as though, you know, th the vision that I set out to achieve is something that is materializing. Episode six sees Jeff Ropemeyer, the founder of Impact HK, an amazing charity that helps get homeless people off the street, recount some of the most memorable things ever said to him. Is there anything that really sticks in the mind? Could be from one of your walks. I don't know. Yeah, I don't really have. Um, I don't really have anything that jumps out at me. Sometimes I think about 
Um, when, I mean, when you, when you ask that, I, I do think about some of the, the, the stories, uh, by people that we've helped and what they've, what they've gone through, you know, like, uh, I don't know. I just, this one that just, just happened a, a couple of days ago of a female who, you know, she's suffered, you know, and her, her partner died of an overdose in the bed with her, Oh, geez. but she laid with the body for a few days because wow. she just couldn't understand it. And I just think about that, you know, like it's just, mm. I have, I have a lot of, uh, I have a lot of people that we've helped and I've had conversations with who I genuinely love and, and would mm. call friends for life who have mm. told me things like that. And those yeah. kind of, yeah, those things stick to me. And I, and I feel like that, that resonates with my heart and makes me want to stand up more and, and fight harder to yeah. help people in need. Yeah. It's great that it makes you fight harder because it would be very easy to run away. A lot of people hearing something that jarring and hearing something that that upsetting would would run away. And again, it goes back to what we talked about earlier, right? About compartmentalizing feelings and how can you how do you hear something like that and not be deeply? I mean, you are deeply moved by it, but how do you not let it affect you? I, I'm still trying to wrap my head around it, so I'm not sure I'm strong enough to. I'm not sure many people would be strong enough to to deal with it. Yeah, I think I well, I think practice helps. Sure. You know, I think practice helps. I think, um, I don't want to say I'm been comfortable with it, but I, I do remember having some conversations early where, you know, someone would, well, I mean, I cry often, to be honest, I cry quite a bit, but I'm a very emotional person, but I would say, you know, there were times early on when someone would share a story like that and I would have a very difficult time not crying in front of them. But, um, when I have those conversations now, I'm more of a, I'm more of just a, a rock and, and making sure that they understand that, you know, that, you know, we're here, you know, we're going to do everything we can. And that's, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a challenge. I, I, I'm definitely not an expert in that, but I think I'm, I'm, I'm just learning every day and trying, trying my best. And it, I think it comes naturally because I do, I do honestly just care so much mm-hmm. and that's just what my focus is and, and it, you know, it's all I can do really. Yeah. Great, man. Um, I don't like running either. Not a big runner. (laughs) My running days are over, so. Episode seven was with Arthur Hayes, Bitcoin billionaire and founder of the 100X Group, on his approach to social media and why he's wary of getting pitched. You do become something of a lightning rod for for idiots when when you you know achieve a certain follow account on Twitter. How do you deal with with that negativity and and kind of the trolls online? You love it? It's absolutely. It's, <laughs> it's entertaining to me. I, I actually Funny. leave my, my, my DMs open on Twitter. I never respond to anyone just to see the kind of things that people send me. And it's really, really funny to me. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's social media, right? You, have to, you, can't, you can't take it too seriously. Everybody is acting on social media. Um, you know, keeping crypto haze is sort of an archetypal, you know, hack, right? So it's fun. It's interesting. It's, it's marketing. Is acting. Um, everybody's playing their part, even, you know, the people consuming this sort of entertainment as well. So I view it as entertainment and people go on there to be entertained, right? And so you're giving that sort of value to them. And there's a, obviously there's a bit of financial stuff in there, but you know, if you're a serious creator and you're getting your news and your sentiment analysis solely from Twitter, I guarantee you'll have less money <laughs> in a few years ago than you have today. <laughs> Uh, I think that's a very, very healthy view, Arthur. I think that's a very healthy reframe and a way to view social media. Um, so 
I mean, the crypto haze persona is great. Do you think there's, there is, I mean, you've admitted it in as many words that there's a massive delta between the, the crypto haze Twitter persona and the man, Arthur Hayes. Yeah, that's fair to say. Yeah, it's, it's acting. It's fun. I mean, obviously there's a kernel of truth in there, but at the end of the day, it's, it's a, you're putting out a vision of something and you're getting people to sort of interact with it. And it's, it's kind of fun. All good comedy contains the kernel of truth. So there yeah. you go. <laughs> um, let's move off that. And I'd like to ask some kind of more quick fire questions that are more sure. like about kind of mental models, heuristics, habits that you have. Are there any, are there any kind of first principles or, or heuristics that you use to aid your decision making that you think of often, something that you always keep front and center? Yeah, I mean, I guess that, well, a lot of times I get pitched a lot of things, right? And I always, and, you know, I like to do a lot of other stuff besides work. So in some respects, I'm extremely lazy. And the best mark for a con is the lazy guy who has a lot of money, right? And so the first thing I think when anyone ever pitches me, like, why am I seeing this? I'm not smarter than anyone. My job isn't to invest. Um, I'm not a professional in any of these sort of ways. So why are you showing me this deal? And why has somebody else taken it before me? Usually that means I'm the schmuck, right? And so I think when you evaluate it from that perspective and be extremely humble about the fact that you have less information and you have less time and, and you're not the smartest person in whatever it is the, the field is that you're, you're talking about, then you're able to make better decisions, I feel like, and not getting caught up in the whole ego stroking BS that a lot of that follows a lot of this kind of stuff. Yeah, that's a great heuristic, right? Why, if this is so good, why am I seeing yeah. it, right? Yeah. Why haven't you? Why haven't you filled your quota yet, right? Why yeah. isn't this round full? Episode eight sees Jeannie Choli, the first ever Asian female master of wine, discuss why work-life balance, in the narrower sense, should be disregarded, but a proper value hierarchy should always be defended. I mean, are there any other ways in your life that you've really tried to stop the commercial world, um, the outside world impinging on what you deem to be important? Well, I think the most important thing is knowing very clearly in your mind what is your first priority. And uh, that's part of the whole juggling being wearing so many hats uh, professionally and personally. And, and once you do that, once you have a kind of value hierarchy as to what's most important, let's say you say your family, your, your children and your wife and, you know, your parents. And if that is it, then you think, well, how do I make sure that no matter what sort of professional choices I make, uh, it always respects that. Uh, y- you need to let your family know that, you re- that they are number one to you. Uh, but at the same time, you're trying to balance the, the commercial side of saying, okay, how do I feed my family? How, how, what are the practical aspects of, um, of, 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 of making sure that you provide? And sometimes in life, the way life goes is it's never, it's never a balance day to day. And that's utterly ridiculous and even on a week to week or month to month uh there is someone asked me do you have balance in your life how do you balance profession and motherhood i don't not on a month to month or week to week basis but if you look at the entire year or you know a set number of years uh you will see that i take months off um, usually when there are also 
not in school and not occupied so that I am there for them during those months. So summertime, a month during winter. So if you look at the entire time frame, a longer time frame, then you'd say, oh, you spent three full months with your family, you know, basically catering to their needs and spending time with them and making them number one and putting everything else aside. So you can try to balance it that way, but I don't think any person on a day-to-day basis looking for balance really works. Because if you do anything really well, let's say you're working on a project, uh, there's going to be probably weeks or maybe months where you get sucked into it. And you're going to have to give it your all. Otherwise, you're not going to be good at it. So you do. And then you say, okay, let me step back because um, you know this shouldn't take up all of my time. This is not my priority. This is my number two or three maybe, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and then uh, for me, what I did, and I think maybe as a, as a mother being the primary caregiver, because my husband was so busy, he was um, traveling and, and not really around when the kids were small. Uh, when I started to work harder, and uh, in 2008, my youngest was seven years old, so they were all in school full time, but still it meant I had to travel to France, and you know I was getting called to judge or do conferences and so forth. So every time I had to travel or, or be away from them, the, the the one thing I always asked is, you know, your mommy needs to leave. This is what I, this is partly for my work. But if you really want me to stop working, I will. And for, from the age of, from the time that they were, I think around, yeah, seven or eight until they were about 14, um, I asked each one of them individually, separately, one by one. That's a great practice. Because yeah. I just wanted to know if they really needed me. Mm. And if I was really missing something. And I said, if you ever do, I will drop this because it's not as important as you are. And don't ever think that it is, even if I'm not here. So as long as you understand that and you know that, and if you ever really just you're sick of me not being around or, you know, I'm too distracted or I'm working too hard, I said, I I would give up everything. And I meant it. I wasn't just saying it. I really meant it. So... I think they always knew very clearly that they were number one for me, always. Um, And I never let them forget it. Um, And that uh, all the other stuff was because they allowed me. They, they, um, you know, I had the luxury, the privilege of pursuing my interests and, and my career. Episode nine features David Yarrow, one of the world's best wildlife and fine art photographers. He recounts his days as a high-flying hedge fund manager, when his life took a turn during 9-11, and how all that glitters ain't gold. I think the best book on investment ever written, and there's a big gap between the first book and the second book, is, is Nassim Taleb's Fool by Randomness. Fool by Randomness, to me, is the Bible for anyone that has aspirations of being a and I'm sure you've read it, and, and the central thesis of, of, of Fool by Randomness is that we tend to retrospectively attribute um, good things that have happened to us to skill and bad things that have happened to us as bad luck, where, of course, as we know, it's, it's more a random walk, hence the title Fool by Randomness. The fact that we had a, had a good month in September changed people's perception of me, which is totally wrong. I just got lucky. Um, and then we went from running a small amount of money 
to being talked about. And um, it was the curate's egg in, in some ways because I wasn't equipped emotionally it, it, um, from a managerial perspective to running a big firm. And before you knew it, I was had 25 people. Um, we were running a lot of money for institutions, for endowments. Uh, and um, we did okay with the tech unwind in 2001 too. And, um, but I wasn't, I wasn't, I couldn't cope with it. I, I, there were too many balls in the air for me. And I, before you knew it, I was, I guess I was, looking back, I was in my uh, mid thirties, uh, mid to late, mid thirties, mid, mid to late thirties. Uh, I was employing 30 people, had two children under the age of five. Um, and I wore everything on my sleeve to the extent that I couldn't compartmentalize my life. Uh, I, I, I didn't enjoy it. Um, and uh, effectively it cost me my marriage. And I look back on it now and there were a lot of lessons that I learned from it, but it's not a big surprise to me that the success rate of m marriages in the hedge fund world is not a great statistic because there's just an awful lot for people to take on on both sides at, at home and in the office and there's a degree of no matter how much you try and retain a normality i think there is i see it from people now looking from the outside i think there is an extent to which uh they can become colored by a misplaced sense of their own self-importance. Um, the world will survive without hedge fund managers. The, it, is, it is the manipulation of money. It is not the most um, important job in the world. But sometimes when you've got the responsibility of looking after so many people's money, you do think it is, which is wrong. And uh, I didn't particularly like myself during a period. Everyone used to think, oh, Christ, you're... You must be earning so much money and um, life must be great. And you've got the perfect sort of family at home. But it was, um, that was not the case. It was a bluff. Episode 10 features Jamie Hunt, co-founder of the massively successful performance sportswear brand, Two Times You. He candidly discusses the depression that haunts so many entrepreneurs. Having gone through it, you know, I, I, I wear it on my sleeve. I mean, I, I'm speak openly about it. I speak openly with people about it, especially in men's groups. One thing I, one thing I, you know, one thing I will say is because I'm so open with it, people come to me with their own, you know, where they're at with stuff. And I can say to you, hand on heart, almost every one of my successful entrepreneurial friends has been through depression. Almost every single one of them. I mean, it is just... It is just the world that we live in. We're not designed to be on our phones 24-7. We are not designed to be constantly on aeroplanes, you know, traveling amongst different time zones, the tiredness and the fatigue from that. We are not, we are not designed to, to be that way. We are not. And I think, you know, if you are going to be successful, you have to understand there will likely be a time in your life where you go a little bit too far. And I think when you have gone through it, you then get to understand what are your triggers um, you know it's a, it's a common phrase that, that's used with, with, with obviously with depression anxiety you learn I mean I know with myself when I go to Europe and back 
um, I know as an example, when I get home, I will often will probably spend two or three days in a bit of a depressive mood because the chemicals in my brain, the fatigue from that flight, um, you know, I will likely will have, have some bad days when I come home, you know, and it's just, I've now, I've now learned that. So I've now learned to make sure those days, are actually days that are a bit slower now where I can sleep in and I can have to go to work so much. And normally we get back from those trips and, and, and jump and jump quite. And actually I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you quickly an, an amazing story that I heard uh, about this. I mean, one, I once heard a, um, an interview with someone talking about, um, depression and anxiety and troops and, and, and they're talking a lot about after World War One and World War Two, the amount of depression and anxiety from those troops compared to um, soldiers nowadays was well less than half of what it is in modern day troops and they worked out what it was is that after war these guys would hop on ships and they would sail for two or three weeks home to when they actually went. so during those two or three weeks they talked through their battles with their com you know with their mates they, they talked through they downloaded they slept they decompressed all they had gone on with their lives and when they got home they were they were in a much more ready state but nowadays you fly home from battle and wherever you may be you're in your family life the stresses of home you haven't really dealt with all that was going on and like in it's a really good analogy of what we go through in our days nowadays. Episode 11 features Isabella Grandich, the teenage wonder kid on how to improve and level up without the benefit of a world-class network. It's interesting because I feel like we're in this world where we have literally so many cool resources. Like you mentioned books. Books are life-changing. I think I think you're right. Um, books are very time contextual. There's been some awesome books that I've read, and I think that I don't know if they're objectively awesome books, but they were just right book, right time type of thing. Um, and I think you can really. I think the thing that I've always approached my life with is I can make use of anything. Like I can figure out how to be resourceful with any resources that I have, and I'm just gonna. Life gives me lemons. I'm gonna make the freaking best lemonade ever. Um, and I think I just try to have that mindset going into almost anything. And so there's going to be a podcast and it's going to be great. Like there's so many great podcasts. Go to Tim Ferriss, literally close your eyes, randomly click one. It's going to be, it's going it to be good. Be <laughs> I think I recently read this and I can't remember where it's from. So I'm not going to quote it, but it, yeah, it was all about how we know the answers. And I think a lot of like the best advice seems so generic and it's almost unsatisfying to hear that advice. You're like, yeah, I know, but is there like a sexier answer to that? And I think a lot of our problems don't stem from ignorance. Like we, we can find the answers very quickly, but I think the best, um, most of our problems stem from inaction, not being able to take that and actually do it. And part of that, like I mentioned earlier, is I don't know if we're trained on consistency and being able to be disciplined and just saying no to different things. Uh, and I wonder if I've always been like a very extreme personality. Like when I commit something, I commit to it. No baby steps. A lot of people want to like take it slow and be quick. And I'm just like, no, I, what kind of person do I want to be? Like, let me be that person. And then like, I'll figure out the rest and like integrating it into my life. Might be too much of an extreme path, but I think I've always learned the most from trying the extremes and then seeing what is working or what isn't working and then moving backwards. Episode 12 features Andy Barrow, former captain of Team GB and multi-Paralympian, 
discussing why he doesn't regret the injury that left him paralysed, and talks about how to find the beauty in small things. If I hadn't have had this spinal cord injury, I don't think my life would have had anything like the joy, the colour, the variety that it does now. I, I wouldn't take it back. I really wouldn't take it back because it has defined me. I've been in a wheelchair longer than I've been on my feet and it has enabled me to do some unbelievable things. Yeah, that's incredibly healthy, man. Well done. Well done. Thank you. I like to kind of start moving towards some of the, the final questions, obviously, just to, to be respectful of your time, Andy. What are, what are some of the things that you talk about in, in your inspirational speeches as you travel around the world, if you had to distill it, you know, down to just one or two things? What, what makes a life well lived? What makes it important? Why are you doing what you do? Um, I think you almost just said one, you know, why do you do what you do? For, for me, it's all about that kind of lens. You know, you focus in when you need to on the detail and then draw it out to the big picture. Why am I doing what I'm doing? I made a promise to myself when I was 17 to only do the things that made me happy. All right. And I don't mean that on a, like, like uh, on a, a, a level of, you know, a level of detail, you know, no one's happy about getting out of bed at five in the morning. I mean that on a bit, you know, I'm getting out of five in the morning, out of bed at five in the morning so I can get on a plane to South Africa. Let's say do the things that make you happy. That your happiness is the root of it all. And I guess my overall strap line is, is take the opportunity. Your life is a series of opportunities, series of unchecked boxes um just chances to do something so you know there's opportunities everywhere so just take the opportunity and do the things that make you happy that's great mate thank you um a little kind of uh, scooby snack one uh, one simple habit that you could give me that has disproportionately large benefits so this could be you know it could be something really arbitrary and, and funny or or it could be kind of a mental uh, like a, a mental tool that you have just a simple habit that's just had outsized benefits for you i think for me personally it's just it's just planning it's just <laughs> for me it's just like lay, laying things out the night before like I, I i hate rushing now and i never used to get it when my dad used to say i'll give yourself more time but you know, before you go to bed, you know, get your breakfast stuff ready and all the rest of it. Just, just that preparation, that thing, thinking about stuff ahead of time makes my life so much easier. I'm probably acutely aware of that because it's a far bigger thing for me if I, you know, get out of my wheelchair, get into my bed and I've left the light on than, than it is for you, you know. <laughs> so, but things like that, you know, that, that, that helps me being having a system and planning really really helps the only other one i can think of is just time for yourself you know especially in in 2020 i you know i i've got a park um a couple of hundred yards away and from from the start i made sure especially during that first lockdown i was out in the park every day and i've noticed it's something i've not done before i've done over 500 mile in that park now my run keeper says and I've watched it through the seasons um, and that's amazingly kind of grounding to have watched it from spring all the way through summer. I watched a particularly angry swan in the park for the first month and then he 
and his partner and eight signets came out a month later and watched them all over the summer and they're fully grown now and they're one by one starting to fly away from the family and go make their own families to have that that's that's stuff that kind of humans and it's kept really kind of like out there now and philosophical that's stuff that humans have enjoyed watching for years and years and years and only just stopped watching so for thousands of years we've, we've appreciated things like that and only in the last hundred have we 200 years have we stopped so just something like that that kind of grounds you to kind of nature I guess, or the world um, that the, we, the part of it we didn't build. That's been extremely important for, for my mental health during this time. Episode 13 featured James Riley, CEO of the Mandarin Oriental Hotel Group. He shares with me some words that fortify him when times get hard. And the honest answer is someone said to me directly, there's really nothing that sticks, but when I reflected on it, the thing that most has stuck was um, a, I think it was a half hour, it could have been a one hour documentary that I saw that was done um, about a wonderful lady of 109 called The Lady in Number Six, which was about a, a survivor from a concentration camp in, in uh, from Auschwitz, um, who was a concert pianist and at the age of 109 was still playing the piano, living in her flat in London. Um, and this, the, the director and producers of the documentary had been given the, the heads up by someone, you must go and see this lady, having recently produced something on the Holocaust. And they produced this quite rapidly program, which I've watched five, six times. And the two things that come most memorably from it and really stick in my mind and I repeat time and again, was first of all, she had this wonderful smile as she played the piano and chatted. She was always smiling and she had an East, a slight Eastern European accent and she would just occasionally break off and say, life is beautiful. And it sort of sticks with me just as a, a remembrance, something to keep with you at all times. Life is beautiful. And then the other thing, a particular phrase, that was a phrase she heard, but was very poignant, was that in, I think it was 1940, she and her sister were living at home with their parents uh, in Prague, and the Gestapo came to take her father away. And as he left, and it was the last time she saw him, he turned to the two of them and said, calm is strength, calm is strength. And that was the last words that he said. And I do have a propensity to get overexcited. I um, can get somewhat cross at times. And it's something I always am reminding myself. Um, I'm always or often failing, but remembering that simple, simple phrase that it doesn't matter how trying the circumstances, how challenging the environment, how difficult the task, Ultimately, strength is shown through calm. And I often find myself having to backtrack on something, apologize for something where I've been overheated. And apologies are things I don't struggle to give. And what I struggle to do is get things right first time sometimes. But that simple adage, calm is strength, I find very powerful. Yeah, it's very powerful. I think that self-awareness is great. And also 
uh, I mean, in 2020, what better mantra to keep front and center, right? Than calm is strength. Right? We've needed that more than ever, right? I think it's very, very easy to. Uh, Easier said than yeah. done, though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Episode 14 was with Annabelle Bond, the first female climber to conquer all seven summits, the highest peak on each continent, in less than a year. We all got colds coming in. And I remember sort of David Brashears, who was filming the Everest movie at the time, mm-hmm. stay away from me because <laughs> no one wants to get anything. Um, and then you get to base camp and, you, you know, that's, that's high. That's 5,700 meters. You're, you, that's your base for the next six weeks. Um, and you've got to remember also, like, nothing heals at base camp. So I used to bite the side of my nails. So I'd have open wounds, which didn't go away. Um, you have a kumbu cough, you cough like you can't even imagine. Um, and then you start going up and down the mountain, getting acclimatized. So um, I remember, yeah, we we had rest days and then we'd go through the ice fall. The ice fall for me was terrifying. I've seen some of the footage. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, it's Russian roulette in there. It's statistically much safer now because the ice fall doctors, the two very courageous Nepalese guys, we have a, you know, you pay to use the fixed lines now. But the route changes all the time because it's constantly, you know, um, moving. And I remember saying to um, Rodrigo Jordan, our expedition leader, and I'm like, oh, Rodrigo, should I put my um, helmet on in the ice floor? And he looked at me and he's like, don't bother, gringa. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't bother, <laughs> So yeah. if anything falls on you, yeah, yeah, you're done. You're, you're yeah. done. Yeah. You're done. Because I've seen some of the videos and you're literally, you know, when you're using the ladder, right? So to try and paint a picture for people is best as I possibly can over audio but you know you're on this ice fall and there is a crevasse just thousands of feet deep right beneath you and there is a ladder you know laid flat horizontally and you're crawling on this ladder that's maybe what a foot wide on your hands and knees right and most people don't crawl but my 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 boots weren't fitting between the rungs don't forget you've got crampons on and you've got two very slack ropes which are held together by an ice screw so when that's why you pass through at night, because in the day when it heats up, those ice screws become loose. So if you fall, who knows if they're holding? I mean, let's hope they do. Um, and I crawled just because I'm, I have such vertigo. It was my only way of being able to go over those ladders because your head, you have to control your mind. I mean, this is the, you have, you, I mean, thoughts of plummeting down into an abyss beneath you, you know, you have to just put all that out of your mind. Um, and it was, I mean, I, I would be shaking so much. The whole ladder would be going. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you got to remember they're tiny flimsy aluminium ladders. And there's on some crevasse crossings, there could be eight just flimsily tied together. I mean, it didn't feel safe at all. No, it didn't look safe either. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I still feel. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and we have to double click on the fact that you said you have a fear of heights. So for someone who has no, a no. self-admitted uh, fear of heights to then obviously go and climb Everest and, and this, the seven summits. How did you deal with that? Because I think that's something that a lot of people can relate to just that, that vertigo and fear of heights. Um, I think it's ultimately, you know, this was such a big goal that I had in my mind and obviously the first obstacle was the ice fall which is where the most exposure is because even though you know further up the mountain even though it, you, you would die if you fell the snow provides a ledge so you're not looking at a sheer drop whereas the ice fall it's a sheer drop so um you know you just have to control your mind 
And it was just that fear of not reaching my goal. And I had to statistically tell myself, it's not going to happen to you. It's not, you know, I was talking to myself as I went over these ladders. And, um, and I'm just so glad I did. It would have, you know, my fears would have meant that I wouldn't have conquered such a huge goal, a once in a lifetime opportunity. I would never been able to go back. So um, I'm just so glad I just stayed focused and and overcame that that fear. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because, I mean, just changing the subject off to Everest for one second. Yeah, it's fine. Um, you know, I just had a, we were talking about this, this virus, which is obviously terrible. Um, and someone said to me, the biggest virus on the world is the virus of fear. And it's true. It's, it's, it stops you, it inhibits you from doing so much. So, so I just had a choice. I just had to deal with it. Episode 15 featured Malcolm Wood, serial entrepreneur of 35 plus businesses and extreme sports athlete on the importance of doing hard things. I'm hearing you, watching you talk about um, extreme sports and your eyes are lighting up. So my question is, I take the mountains away from you. What happens? What does your life look like if I take that sport away from you? I, I mean, people can live without mountains. And for, 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 for me, it's, it's the moment of achieving something for putting in hard work. So I keep saying this, you know, you, you asked me, why did you do the restaurant industry halfway through our chat? It's rewarding because it's hard. If it's not hard, it's not rewarding. Paralpinism is rewarding because it's so hard that you have to do all these different disciplines and fly and, and, and manage all of that risk and pressure and be fit and do all the prior training, it becomes immensely rewarding. And I, I, I think what we all need is we all need our own mountain. What, 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 whatever that is, you know, whether it's, it's a triathlete in Singapore or whether it's, um, a canoeer in the Yukon or whether it's a businessman in New York city, everyone's climbing their own personal mountain. If, if one mountain gets taken away from you, you're going to find another one. Um, and so don't, I mean, looking at this in a slightly different way is, is you shouldn't get upset when something's taken away from you. You should go and find that other mountain. I know what you're trying to angle at is if I lose this pristine environment, how does that affect us? And that's a much bigger answer that, you know, I, I, I can't get into, but it's, we shouldn't lose that environment because it's super important for, for the world, for the planet and for humanity. Um, but answering it in a different way, everyone should find that mountain and keep looking for their next mountain. Crushed it. That's, that's an even better answer than the one I was angling for. I think that it's the, it's the encapsulation of, of everything that you're about, right? Which is, it's rewarding because it's hard, right? And you'd find something yeah. else. Yeah. Brilliant, mate. And I think that's I think that's even more relevant now in COVID. Like I think a lot of a lot of mountains are being taken away from people, left, right, and center. And I I, I think you've just got to look at the light at the end of the tunnel, look for hope, look for look for the next challenge and maybe use the opportunity to 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 do something different. Do something completely different. Use your skill set to start a new business that you didn't think you would be able to start or or even think about yeah yeah amazing
I like to ask these to every guest you, you may have heard before. So if you could distill it down to just one thing, um, what is the most important principle that you live your life by? I think I mentioned this a few times. It's, it really comes down to that fine balance between something that challenges you enough and that you're passionate about, you know, that you're problem solving something. And I, I, my advice to anyone who, you know, my, my daughter's 16, so she's, she's at actually 17. Oops. Um, she's at the age where, you know, she, she needs to make some big life decisions about what she wants to study and all of these sort of things. Um, and the, the passion and the challenge is important combination. And I think a lot of young people are looking for something that they're good at already and the easy route. And what I would say, you know, as my advice to, 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 to people who ask me that question is just make sure it's hard enough. You know, everything that I've done that's rewarding has been hard. Episode 16 featured Simon Ree, martial arts instructor, teacher, and professional trader on taking the time to design your life. The most memorable thing someone's ever said to me, I was, I was seeing, um, I was seeing a, a counsellor years ago, a sort of different point in my life, and he said to me, it is a, he's a clinical psychologist, and, and he said he had met hundreds if not thousands of people who were you know, in middle age, and they would come to him and they would say, you know, my life just hasn't turned out the way I thought it would. And they'd say that with, uh, you know, an air of regret. You know, it would be in, that, that, that comment would be imbued with a degree of sadness. And, and he would then say to them, well, what, what did you expect your life would be like? And the answers that came back would be very, very fuzzy, very, very imprecise. And, and the fact is, so few of us actually plan our lives. You know, we, we, we've got this very, very vague, fuzzy idea of what we think our life might be like. Vague and fuzzy plans yield vague and fuzzy results. And, and to me, that was really powerful. And, and, and it, it, that was me to a T. I'd, I'd never bothered to kind of design my life or, or work out what it, what it was I wanted to do, how I wanted my life to look. And I think if you don't make that effort to do it, that you, 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 you lend yourself to become a victim of circumstance. Whereas if you just spend that time planning your life, designing your life, what, what do I really want it to look like? Uh, you, you got a much greater chance of, of getting there. And instead of ending up middle-aged thinking, wow, life just didn't turn out how I thought it would. I really like that. Yeah, the, the intentionality of it, right? Uh, designing a life purposefully. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Episode 17 was with Kevin Dahlstrom, Chief Marketing Officer and Angel Investor, on what constitutes his personal definition of success. It's not that, you know, lifestyle means you're not working hard. You know, I still work. In fact, my wife thinks I work seven days a week and I kind of do, <laughs> but I also play seven days a week. So it's really just about controlling, you know, where and when you, you do your work. And, you know, now fast forward 20 years and uh, you're right that COVID has been a major inflection point in this. And it, it, it opened a lot of eyes and, and, you know, even today though, there's, there's a lot of companies that cling to that old, I call it the butts and seats model. Yeah. Uh, but but you know, clearly there's been an inflection point and the cat is out of the bag now. I mean, it's only going to accelerate because because guess what? It makes sense. And uh, I read something recently that that is is really 
something worth thinking deeply about. It was talking about, someone was talking on Twitter about how the way the world used to be is that we did work synchronously and we did our um, non-work life asynchronously. So you'd be at work with your colleagues and, you know, you'd communicate with your family and your friends, you know, asynchronously. And that's kind of flipped. Now we're doing our family life and our personal life synchronously. So we're always around and we're at home, we're available and we're doing work asynchronously. We're, we're, using, we're doing it when we have the opportunity. And that's really a, a, a life-changing shift in the model. No, I think that's a great, it's a great way of thinking about it, right? That, that movement to, to asynchronous workplaces, it, it's a massive opportunity and a challenge as well. You know, I, I loved, uh, the reason I reached out to you is because you have achieved, you know, a very commendable level of success in the business world. You, you've done some, some pretty cool bucket list things, right? Ringing the bell on the New York Stock Exchange, you know, building brands from zero, acquiring millions of customers. You've raised money from, you know, pretty stellar VCs. But usually there is a trade-off, right? And you seem to be one of those guys who doesn't, hasn't really had to make that trade-off, right? In terms of burning the candle at both ends, um, there, there is something that we're going to dig into as well, which is you did also admit that you hit a wall a few years ago, right? And and there was a need to kind of readjust the balance. So has it always been easy for you to to kind of hold that that mental model of work-life balance? Um, well, as I said, I mean, certainly I always had a desire, I think more desire than most and willingness to take action on achieving work-life balance. But, you know, the culture hadn't come around. So has it gotten easier over the years? Absolutely. Some of it is just setting boundaries. You know, I'm big on boundaries, like just being willing to set a limit on what you're, you're willing and, and unwilling to do. Um, and, you know, there, there's, a, there's a great quote from, uh, there's an American poet named uh, Annie Dillard who has this great quote. Uh, and, and the quote is, how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. And on the surface, it seems like a very, what does that even mean? But the idea there is that, you know, a lot of us, you know, live our lives waiting for that someday moment, like someday I'm going to have the life I want, but, but really all life is, is a collection of days. And so the time is now to start living the way you, you want to live. And so a lot of it, the hardest part actually is just making the decision that you're going to set boundaries and having a clear idea of what success looks like to you. Um, and, and as I said, now more than ever, you know, companies and colleagues are willing to embrace that because we all see see the benefit of it. So I think you can have your cake and eat it too. But I, I want to be very clear that you know it's not about the easy life. You know, it's um, you know I still work very hard at a high level of intensity. You know, a lot of my days are scheduled out in fifteen minute increments, but it's about having control and and that that's real freedom. You know, in, in my definition of success. Is, is freedom and control over your, your time. Episode 18 featured Joshua Lysak, professional ghostwriter. He shares with us three techniques for writing content that holds people's attention. There's a lot of this talk about attention span versus you know attention threshold. It's maybe a decent way to, to put it. And I think there's still there's still very much a market for long form intelligent content. People will still read long books as long as they're bloody good, right? They just have to be incredible. But you have to get their attention very very early, right? So do you have any techniques for kind of grabbing their attention right off the bat? You know, to use the old newspaper phrase, if it bleeds, it leads. Um, how crucial do you think that is in terms of grabbing people's attention very quickly and 
to pull them through the rest of the book? Yeah, there's three things that I've found. There's more than three, obviously, but there's three that I can quickly <laughs> tell three is that, nice. yeah. <laughs> that move people through content. So the first thing is know that chapter one is a direct response sales letter for the rest of the book. Your job is to sell people who've already bought the book, by the way, on actually finishing it, or at least not stopping from there. So assume that you still have to sell people on investing their time in the book because it takes about eight hours on average to read a book, consume a nonfiction book. So even if they spent 20 bucks, eight hours is worth a lot more time than, than 20 bucks, 20, 20 US dollars or whatever currency that the person purchased it in, right? So you must sell people who've already bought it to now choose to invest their time. So the intention, interest, desire, action, that ADA, it's called AIDA, attention, interest, desire, action, that structure works exceedingly well for the first chapter of your book. And don't call it introduction, by the way. It's just chapter one or just name it, okay? People skip the introduction, they skip the preface. <laughs> tell it what it is, tell it like it is. Okay. Um, that's one thing. And then the real book actually begins in, in chapter two, okay? That's the first thing. Second thing is principle from hypnosis or hypno writing, as we would call it, is open loops regularly open loops and say things like, we'll come right back to this, to be continued. Those sorts of, well, what happens? The, you can, might even call this the, the Netflix effect, right? Playing next episode in, you know, <laughs> and then the countdown. Like, well, I wanna know what happens next. Use that in your writing. Open loops, but of course, always close them. A good way, a favorite way of mine to do this is to open a chapter with a story that begins to demonstrate what you'll be teaching in that chapter. And then just as you get to the pivotal moment and right before you say how it turns out, switch to now teaching, switch to the teaching. And then you continue, you conclude the individual story there at the end of the chapter, showing how it turned out, right? Beautiful bookends of the chapters. And then of course you have another open loop in which you say, now that you've learned X, in the next chapter, you're gonna compound it beautifully with Y. I'll see you there. Again, it's not just stopping the chapter, it's priming people for what's next. It's okay, I'm I'm ready. Call it priming, call it pre-suading, call it setting the table, calling it whatever you want. That's essentially what you're doing is you're opening another loop that you now close by having them read the next chapter. That's the second tip to get people to finish your stuff. Third one, very simply is, Section breaks, have section breaks, subsections, headers, subheads throughout the book. So it feels like there's chapters within chapters, one, two, three, four, five, six page chapters within a much longer chapter even is perfectly fine. And I'm a big fan of books like The Way of the Superior Man and its structure. Some chapters are half a page. Oh, oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> What you a feel delicious. like you just read so many chapters. I mean, they were like, there's yeah. like 400 chapters. <laughs> that's <know>? it, right? <laughs> but they're, they're uh, that's yeah. a slight exaggeration. But um, yeah. you feel like you just got so much progress reading it for five minutes. Episode 19 featured Evan Lysacek, the Olympic gold medal winning figure skater. He recalls the pain of finishing fourth at the Olympic Games four years prior and how that drove him to success at Vancouver 2010. 
I just fell. I mean, that was it. It happened in a split second. I fell and that devastation led to one of the greatest revelations in moments of clarity in my entire life. Yeah, go deeper on that for me. Uh, so in that Olympics, it was in 2006 in Torino, Italy. And because I was in fourth place, I was escorted around the Olympic venue right after the completion of the event with all the medalists. So I went to the press conference with them and stood by um, because until doping uh, happens, the 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 results are unofficial. Right. Gotcha. Um, went to the press conference with them. Went to uh, you know photos and watched them have their photos taken, uh, and then went as this sort of parade through the building to the ice where they the three of these uh, gentlemen that I had grown up knowing, competing with, um, some of them training with now got to climb onto the podium and feel the weight of the Olympic medal around their neck and see their nation's flag rising in their honor. And I could see and feel that it was like a sigh of relief from all of them. Um, it was justification for a very strange life, for a very disciplined life, for a life that's um, completely abnormal, but uh, really geared towards one singular goal and to achieve it is, you know, you never have to say a word again to everyone that says, you're crazy. What are you doing this for? You really think you're going to be the one, the one person every four years that wins that gold medal. Why, why don't you just enjoy yourself? Come out tonight, come to dinner, come play tennis with us. And I always had to say, no, no, you don't understand. I have to train. I know it sounds insane to you that I have to be, you know, as a grown man, I have to be up at four in the morning to start my training. And then, you know, that I'm so tired at night that I, you know, can't even stay away. I know that sounds insane to people, but that medal and that achievement was justification for all of it. And I knew, you know, like I said, I don't know how many moments of clarity any individual is afforded ever in their lifetime. I knew in that moment, you know, with 100% clarity, I wanted that. I wanted what they all felt more than what they had. I wanted that feeling that they, that I wanted what they felt and I would do anything to get it. And after that Olympics, I changed, um, I changed the way I approached my skating. I actually became even more obsessive. I just felt like, like I was on the right path and I was heading towards the summit and I got close enough to see the top. And now it's like, now I can see the top. Nothing's going to stop me now. Episode 20 featured Ollie Proudlock, reality TV star, social media influencer, and entrepreneur on the importance of authenticity. You guys do share so much of your lives on social media. It's very clear to everyone that, you know, you guys are madly in love. And I think that's why so many people do follow you. Do you ever struggle to agree how much of your life that you guys should share online and what to keep just for you? Yeah, we, um, you know, I think I said it at the beginning, you know, we are pretty open with, with our relationship and, and, you know, day-to-day stuff, you know, especially over Instagram. Um, but at the same time, we do hold back. We don't share everything. I think the most important thing for us 
when it comes to social media is is just being really authentic and and being us and whether that's you know being silly sometimes and or whether it's you know sharing some of the work that we do like we we like to show a mix and i think we just don't want to overthink if that yeah. makes sense yes i think soon as that starts happening it, it, it just kind of you lose the fun in it mm-hmm. um and we try to have our you know our own time sometimes because sometimes you're like wait a second is this our time or is this time that we're sharing with other people? You know what I mean? So we do, we do try and kind of switch off sometimes and, um, you know, just have date nights and, you know, put our phones aside and, and just have it, you know, just, just me and M's. But at the same time, you know, it's, you know, it's a crazy world that we live in, right. Where, you know, we kind of share, share so much. It's kind of a weird way of keeping up to date with people without even seeing someone. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, people know yeah. know what we're doing, but you know, I feel very grateful that we're both in the same sort of industry because I think it would be tough if it was myself or Ems, and you know, then then I think it would become tricky and trying to find a balance there because I think it, it works because we both understand our our work and and how social media plays a part in that. Yes. Whereas I think if if it was only one of us, I think it would be tough. I think that's a very good point. And to pick up on what you said, I think is very, very true. The reason people resonate with you guys, I think, is because it is authentic. And something I always like to keep front and center is it's kind of a little favorite quote of mine is performance is the enemy of authenticity. Right. And, you know, better than anyone, once you do a second take, a third take, a fourth take, a fifth take, it gets less and less authentic. It, just, it doesn't come. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I feel and I think you. I yeah. think this I think this can be the danger of social media. Because I think what happens is you talk about performance there and I think people start getting addicted to how their content performs. Mm. Do you know what I mean? How many likes, how many comments, all this sort of stuff. And then they start creating content for the purpose of the likes and so on and so forth. And that's when you start losing the authenticity. Whereas if you just focus on sharing things that are real to you, authentic to you, stuff that you enjoy, stuff that you believe in, over time it will resonate and, and people will understand and, and the authenticity will shine through. Right. Because otherwise you're just going to have this constant battle. Um, and, and that's where I think it, it can become really dangerous. Episode 21 features Molly Hillenbrand, entrepreneur, presenter, podcaster on dealing with divorce, raising kids, all whilst running a successful business. It's gotten me through to where I am today, for sure. I've had to be strong, you know, and I've had to put on my armor. Um, And I think it's made me really, really strong. But it's also definitely caused complications in relationships. No, it's something I I definitely struggle with as well. And I think a lot of A-type personalities, entrepreneurs, they worry that they'll lose their hard edge, right? And that drive that makes them successful if they fully engage in being a full citizen of vulnerability and loss and grief. You hit the nail on the head. It was, it's my fear of if I allow myself to go there, what if I can't get out and I get stuck there? I don't want (laughs) to be there. Like, I don't want to be there. And I've watched people, you know, whether it's been divorce, loss of job, um, illness, they get stuck there and they can't get themselves out. And I watch what it does to them. And that is 
like my worst nightmare, um, to, to be stuck and let that define you and, and just be drawn into that hole. And it's, you know, listen, I'm a single mom with two kids. I can't afford to, to be sad or not get out of bed because of whatever's going on in my life. I have to put on that armor and, and keep going because they're watching me. They're watching how I handle life serve me some pretty big blows and newsflash, their life isn't going to be perfect either. And so it is my job, I feel, as a parent to show them how to put the armor on when you get attacked and how to push through it and how to get those skills and the coping mechanisms to push through when life serves you a, a raw deal. Yeah. Yeah. No, you've done brilliantly well as, you know, I always commend you not to your face but i will now um, for doing such a good job of, of raising you know two happy teenage girls and it can't, can't have been easy how how did you deal with with the divorce you know all those years ago how, how did you react in, in the moment how did you plow through because it's something that so many people go through nowadays you know it's, it's just, oh yeah just a fact yeah I know. Although my my kids tell me all the time, we're the only you know kids that have divorced parents. You know, oh, really? I'm like, I what, promise you, we're not. What neighborhood are you in? <laughs> what kind of neighborhood are you living in? You know, they not. love to to throw the guilt trip on me whenever possible. You know, they're two uh, teens, so it's you yeah. can imagine, two teen yeah. girls. Um. So so yeah. So the divorce was obviously um a big blow, and it was I didn't know anybody. I mean, no one in my family is divorced. I have parents right. that have been ridiculously happy married for you know 50 Damn like, you. ridiculously happy married for for yeah. you know 50 years um you know all my family you know is happy and my friends were all married so really i was the first one kind of going through it and you know it was as as some people look at it a failure i don't look at things as failures i look at them as as lessons learned and moving on um, but that was really the first time that I felt like, and I may get flack for this, <laughs> I felt like I was a phoenix rising from the ashes. Like I felt like it was the moment my life really changed for the better. And it's because there, it was a time in my, it was the second time in my life. The first time was when I was sick, right? I had to pull through that and, and get strong. Um, this was another time in my life that I really had to pull myself up and for my kids sake, show them that I'm okay. Because what I realized was the only way my kids were going to be okay is if they saw that their mom was okay. Episode 22 was with Richard Koch, multi-million best-selling author of the cult classic business book, The 80-20 Principle. He talks about how he was promoted without being promoted under the legendary Bill Bain during his days as a management consultant. The one which uh, we're talking about here was really a tactical idea. And this was the idea that if you promoted somebody, you could sort of promote them without promoting them. Uh, and what he did was to uh, sit down with me about a year and a half after I joined his company as a plain old consultant. They had promoted me to manager pretty quickly. Um, and, and so he asked to see me when he visited London because I was working in the London office. And I sat down with him and I thought it was just going to be a nice little chat. And he would say, how are you doing? And I would say, I'm doing fine, Bill. It's really nice working in your company. And maybe we talk a, a little bit about the, you know, the clients I was working on. 
But no, actually, he's, he's, he had absolutely flawed me um, about five minutes into the conversation. I say, well, Richard, yes, we could talk about that, but I've got a little agenda. And one thing I want to talk about is this. I said, okay, Bill. And he said, I want you to become my partner. And I could have fallen off my chair uh, at that. <laughs> I can see it. Yeah. Because it was sort of, it was sort of thing that I had hoped might happen in two or three years' time after that. And um, I said to him, are you kidding me? And he said, no, I'm absolutely serious. He said, there is, there is a slight catch to it, though, Richard. Um, and the catch is that, that, you know, it's a done deal. We've decided, or I've decided, because he was pretty autocratic, uh, that that you know I want you to be my partner, but it ain't going to happen for the next nine months. It's definite. Don't worry about it. But um, I'm going to announce it along with other people in nine months' time. And why why are you going to uh, do that, Bill? Uh, he said rhetorically to himself. And he said it's because when it's announced, I want everyone to say it's obvious. It's obvious that Richard, although he hasn't been in the firm for very long, should be a partner of the firm. And he said, the way that that's going to work, Richard, is you're going to behave for the next nine months as if you are a partner. But you're, you don't have the title and you don't have the authority. But nevertheless, you are going to assume that you're a partner and fulfill that role. And you're going to interact with people in a way that a partner would normally do, except that, of course, you can't tell them directly to do something. But he said, you're smart enough to work out how to be nice to people and how to get them to do something uh, without the authority, because it's obvious that it should be done, because you know what should be done and so on. And that had an enormous impact on me. It completely changed my perspective on the work that I was doing. Instead of thinking of myself principally as someone who was a unit of production um, on his own, who would talk to clients and you know think about uh, what was important to prove in the study and how to crack the case, uh, I thought about myself someone who was there to extract the best possible results from the team of people that I worked with or for, from anyone that I came across in the firm and to help them. Um, and that therefore resulted in a very productive nine month period, which was probably much more productive than the following period after. <laughs> uh, he kept his word, you know, the announcement yeah. was made. So, <laughs> so, you know, it was, it was a very, very interesting experience. And as you say, expectations are, are everything. Episode 23 with Bob Sheard, co-founder of creative agency Fresh Britain. Bob gives us a masterclass on how to conceptualize brand design at the very highest level using the outdoor performance brand, Arcteryx, to illustrate the creative process. So our question to ourselves was, where is the truth within Arcteryx? And the, and the question that was most pertinent is, how, what is it about where Arcteryx is from that shapes the behavior that makes the kind of products that they create. Because the kind of products that they create don't have big logos on, they're really subtle, there's not a lot of, um, they're very clean, they're the opposite of the North Face, they're the opposite of Patagonia. So what is it about being from Northern Vancouver that shapes the behavior that creates the products that you create? 
And what we were able to do was um, go back and look at sort of this in the look using contextual intelligence to look at the sort of um, where they sit in in history. And if you look at the North Face, um, it's totemic of Western civilization. You know, the North Face, big American brand. America is the leading light in Western civilization. Western civilization has existed before America. It's existed for 5,000 years. But for 5,000 years, there's been the odd outbreak of peace. But it has been 5,000 years of conflict, whether that's countries versus countries, religions versus religions, civilizations versus civilizations. And how that's manifested itself in our relationships with each other is incredibly competitive. In our relationships with sport, it's incredibly competitive. There isn't a global channel for any sport where there isn't a definitive loser. You know, you can't show me the global rock climbing, rock climbing channel or the global yoga channel. It's just, you know, the big sports in the world are where there is a loser. And it's also shaped our relationship with Earth and the outdoors. So the second or sixth line of Genesis is man's dominion over nature. So even in the heart of Christianity, we talk about owning nature. And if you walk around all the outdoor stores, broadly speaking, it's pictures of man conquering nature, planting a flag on top of the mountain. And the North Face is totemic of that. You know, it's, you know, never stop exploring, Conrad Anchor climbing Everest for the eighth time or whatever. And it's just that that story exists. So understanding that, we can then go back to Arctic and say, okay, what's different about you? Well, actually, you're not from Western civilization because you're Canadian. And Canada is from Northern civilization. And by the way, this was from before the days of Games of Thrones. We were doing this, it was in 2010. So uh, we said, you, and what you have in common is you touch the Arctic Circle and you're, you're, you, you share similar cultural um, systems is as they do in Scandinavia, the Urals, parts of Russia, and your system is more shamanic and it's more nomadic. You come from a people that wandered, that didn't leave a trace, that lived in balance with nature, and you come from a peoples that didn't have an ego. That's why archers you don't have big logos on everything, you know. And so you're ego-free and you live in balance with nature. You're not about conquering nature or owning it in any way. You're about living with it. And so getting that positioning right was what enabled us to truly create the difference between the emerging Arcteryx brand and the remaining cohort of Northern American brands. Um, and then the second piece of information, which was quite fun, was we did the workshop up in, um, in Squamish in BC. And we had 20 people in the room and um, we presented them. We said, right, we're going to be in balance with nature. We're going to be, um, <laughs> we're, going to, we're, 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 we're going to not leave any trace and we're not going to conquer it. We're just going to be part of it. Um, but what's the right role? And we said, you know, the right role here is potentially you're either, you're either a kind of northern civilization warrior or you're a craftsman. And so we presented the different options. And, and then we did a show of hands and 19 out of the 20 said we want to be the warrior and we're like it didn't chime and so that part of our job in that in that situation is to kind of say look you know well let me ask another question and help you see this differently where's the magic of your brand is the magic of your brand like nike in the people that use the brand so ronaldo and all that kind of stuff or you know um federa or is the magic of your brand in the product that you create 
And the one guy that didn't put his hand up was the head of a part of Archer, it's called LEAF, which is uh, an acronym for Law Enforcement and Armed Forces. And he said, and this was just after Bin Laden had been killed, and he said, look, guys, SEAL Team 6, I think it's 48 people, flew in on, 40, on two helicopters and killed Bin Laden. And all of them were using Arcturix harnesses, Arcturix backpacks and Arcturix clothing. Now, we can't claim to have killed Bin Laden, but we can claim to have equipped the guys that did. So we're not the warrior. We are the craftsmen to the warrior. And so that, that was it. Done. Show of hands, 20 people said we're all craftsmen. So um, that was a bit, a bit of an insight into how we were able to um, help create some truth and some meaning behind the brand in a way that built a bridge between the management team and the owners and in a way that gave them a system that could get them to move towards a billion in, in sales. And they're now somewhere near 650. So it, it worked um, and, it, and, and, it, and it helped gal, galvanize them. Um, and in a way, you don't see massive ad campaigns from, from Arcturix. And it just shows you the power of positioning. It's possible to win the battle without firing a shot. And you do it through positioning. And you can use the competition to shape your position, which is exactly what Arcturix have done. So, um, you know, for smaller brands, there's hope there. It's not about necessarily um, the big ad campaign. You can do it through really cute positioning and, uh, and, uh, and it can pay huge dividends. Episode 24 was with Robin Lamsam, TV presenter and former international athlete who represented her country at the Barcelona Olympics at just the tender age of 14. She talks about two important men in her life, legendary swimming coach Bill Sweetenham and her son Kyle, who was born deaf. One is from my professional career, which kind of spills over into daily life now. But Bill said... You will be better tomorrow because of what you did or did not do today. And I thought that was really, really profound. Um, so that was, that was a Bill thing. That was a Bill quote. Um, and then from my Kyle experience, it's just been something simple like a, a mother coming up to me just recently and saying that I gave her hope. And... I don't know if it's egotistical. It just made me feel really, really good because this whole, you know, raising awareness about mental health, about, you know, learning disabilities, about challenges in life, everything. It's, if I can help one person, like like some of those mummies helped me in my darkest hour, I feel like my job is done. Um, and it just... It was wonderful. Like for her to come up to me out of the blue, she just contacted me out of the blue and said that, oh, Robin, I've seen some of your um, articles. I've read some of your articles. I've watched some of the, the programs on you and Kyle. And, and she, said she felt so much more hopeful after watching that because she was really, really she had been, she had been in a hole place, for yeah. a dark place for about three months. Mm. And because of that, she just stumbled across it. And, and because of that, she was clawing her way out. And, and that was, that's basically what I'm trying to do, right, with all this. And it, it, it felt lovely. It really it felt me, it made me feel very warm. I love that. That's beautiful. And it's not egotistical at all. <laughs> I don't even know why you put that in there. But it's like a bit of a it's, me thing, right? <laughs> no, but it's just, 
it landed in the right place, right? That's exactly what you're trying to do, to give back, to give hope where other people once gave you hope. So that's why it landed, right? I, I think there's a, there's another, you know, we're talking about beautiful words. There's, there's a nice quote that sticks with me and I think it's something like, the greatest gift of all is kind words spontaneously tendered. That's exactly what she did for you, right? Yeah. Yeah. No wonder it stuck. So it was, yeah, it was nice to be able to help somebody um, and to give back because, like I said, you know, we've been very, very fortunate with everything along this, you know, what could have been a very, very difficult road. Um, it's made the world of difference. And so for me to be able to help somebody else, it's, it's, it's exactly what I need. It, it's giving back, you know. Yeah. Awesome. Final question. Dum, dum, dum. So what's the most important principle in your life? In the final analysis, what is of most value to you and how do you make sure you orient yourself towards it? Um, guiding principles I've always had um, would be to live life with no regrets. Very important. Um, whether the result is good or bad, I like I said, I... I I want to look back and know I did everything. And something else that has become more and more important to me and something that I, I understand more as I get older is gratitude. I am so grateful for everything that comes along the way. Like I've been put in many different difficult situations, unpleasant situations, you know, challenging situations over the years. And, and as I get older, like, like with swimming, you know, I look back now and I'm so grateful for the love and the support that I had from everybody back then, you know, to, to put me up on, on that pedestal and, and, and enabled me to, to, to try, you know, to give me the best chance to do what I, I need to do. And it's the same with my MC career and now more prophetically than ever with Kyle. I am just grateful for everything. And I think having that, that principle, that guiding principle of gratitude in running through everything I do or every thought I have, it, it makes things a lot easier to handle, you know, whatever the situation may be. I mean, it sounds so cheesy, but it really is that positive thinking, it makes the world of difference. Like you have a choice to to look at something in this light or in this light. And, and with gratitude, if gratitude is sort of one of the foundational principles, it's much easier to gravitate towards a good, positive form of thinking. There's always something to be grateful for. Last but not least, episode 25 featured Simon Jablon, founder and CEO of luxury eyewear brand, Linda Farrow. Sunglasses are worn by all the biggest stars in the world. He speaks to why new companies have to be built on optimism and passion. I, I think it's just the way I'm, I'm, I'm wired. Like I said, I, I, I see people see things in different angles. People would look at something and go, wow, that's really impressive. Congratulations. And I'd be seeing it as in, not that I wouldn't see something as a congratulations and that's great. I'd be seeing something as in, why don't we franchise that and take it to England? Sort of because <laughs> that is smart. I, that's a really yeah. smart idea. How how could I get involved? How could I? And, and it's it's just I think it's how you just hardwired sometimes in that way. You, you just people you know everyone's different and people look at things in different ways. People people look at things enviously. People like hate on things and they're angry. People 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 see the problems in things like. Uh, you know, they, they, they put all the problems in the way. Oh, that would be a really good idea. But 
you know, this could happen, that could happen, this could happen, this could happen, and this could happen. So, you know what, I'm not sure it's worth doing because I see so many problems in the way. And there's a lot of people like that. And a lot of those people are usually called lawyers and accountants. (laughs) And that's why that, but then that, that's, that's, you know, that negative side to a certain degree is their super strength. If it's put to the right, if it's, if it's used in the right way, because you have to look at the downside. You have to look at the negativities. But I think as an entrepreneur, you have to be the ever optimist because otherwise you'll never make anything happen. You have to be the disruptor. You have to be the first to market. You have to just act. If you don't act, you don't do. You don't. There's, you know, there's no business that just works by things just happening for you. It just doesn't work like that. As a lawyer, you can work for a firm and people bring you problems and you go, okay, well, here's the, here's what you got to work out. Here's how you figure it. it doesn't work like that for entrepreneur we're gonna make things happen simon's right and it's time for me to make things happen season two is in the pipeline and i'm in the process of sourcing new guests as we speak so that i can sprint once more i hope you'll continue to help me spread the word about the show to this day i'm proud to say that i have never taken a dollar from anyone or spent a dollar on advertising it may not always stay that way but for now it remains as i conceived it unsullied by commercial breaks, the listener experience primary. It's a labor of love and admittedly a little bit rough around the edges at times because of it, but it is hand on heart the best thing I do. This show really is the gift that keeps on giving. With any luck, there was a soundbite in there from an episode you haven't listened to, which you are now itching to download. And even if you have listened to all of these people before, I hope that it was still an enjoyable stroll down memory lane. I'm as guilty as anyone of forgetting pearls of wisdom, and I know that creating this episode has served to remind me of some very important concepts and principles. On that final note, I will wrap up by sharing three principles in no particular order that, for me, really move the needle when it comes to success and happiness. Number one, comparison is the thief of joy. Be very careful about what and who you consume on social media. Two, you can increase the surface area upon which luck might fall. Some types of serendipity can be engineered. Number three, you can't be normal and expect abnormal returns. You can't give average levels of effort, average energy levels, average people skills, and expect above average results. And just as a bonus for number four, because why not? 80% done and out the door is better than 100% perfect, still in the draw. That new side business, that book, that podcast you've been saying you'll launch one day, just do it. Hit publish, adjust as you go. I'll be back to the regular format and a new guest in a couple of weeks. But in the meantime, thank you to every single one of you that's listened to an episode so far. Take care and much love.
Thank you.